The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. As you look at the chronology in Esther and the order of the events, uh, let me just say this quickly. Esther, the book, enfolds over a period of 10 years. It's 10 years of King uh, Ahasuerus's reign, or Xerxes, as would be his Greek name, uh, his, his reign. And, and over that, you can look through. In the beginning, the first chapter, he holds his banquets. In the second chapter, Esther goes to Ahasuerus. Uh, in the third chapter, Haman casts his lots. Uh, Haman issues his decree, and the date is planned for the annihilation of the Jews. In the eighth chapter, Mordecai issues his decree, a day upon the Jews uh, w- could defend themselves from attack. And then in the end of the story, ten sons of Haman are executed, and a feast of the Purim is celebrated. And as you look through the book of Esther, you can see things in twos. And perhaps the simplest way to see a structure to the book of Esther is to see things uh, in these pairs. Uh, in chapters 1 and 2, there's two queens, and there's two banquets. In chapters 2 through 4, there's two men, and there's two plots. In chapters 4 through 9, there's two strategies, one of Haman and one of God. In chapter 9 and chapter 10, there are two battles. And so as you break down the book, you can see the juxtaposed position, one of evil, one of good, a a negative act, a positive act throughout as we look at the book. And so the outline is arranged around these different banquets. Uh, There's one given by Xerxes to his court. There's one given by Xerxes for the common people in Susa. Uh, In in chapter 1, again, Vashti gives one for the women of the court. Uh, There's one, again, there's all these feasts. The whole book is full of feasts. Chapter 2, Xerxes gives one for Esther. It's Esther's banquet. And then Xerxes and Haman sit down to drink, and they have a private banquet. And then there's a chapter 5, there's a first banquet by Esther for Xerxes and and Haman. And then there's a second banquet given by Esther for Haman and Xerxes. And then there's the feasting and celebration of Mordecai's promotion in chapter 8. And then there's the first day of Purim which is where the Jews today celebrate and get their uh, Feast of Purim. They would have no instruction or understanding of where Purim even comes from, except it comes solely from uh, the the book of Esther. Uh, But there's one kind of uh, overarching question as we read the book of Esther. You can go through, you can do a word study. God is not mentioned, God is not praised, God is not sung about. Uh, There's no mention of God. His name is not given anywhere. And so we're reading the Bible, we're thinking in our minds, all of the Bible is about God. So why isn't he mentioned? Why isn't he, uh, why? I mean, even here, the Jews who are in captivity are, are gathering. And if you want kind of a timeline in this, this happens in line with the book of Ezra. And while Ezra is trying to, and Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to uh, see Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt, if you can remember, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were carried as teenagers into uh, the uh, Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar was the king. You remember how they stood in that culture uh, against uh, all of those things that uh, they were commanded to do that were against God. They stood for righteousness and they stood for God and God blessed them and God protected them through that. But Esther was born after Nebuchadnezzar was overthrown. The Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians. If you can remember that big vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the the different uh, statue, the different parts of uh, that statue, there was Babylon, and then next would be Persia. And Persia was this great empire that was ruled over by uh, Darius, and then uh, Xerxes came uh, down the road, and after this, and uh, we can read of this as we go through uh, the Old Testament scriptures. But think about this. Esther was born a Jew 
but she was born a Jew in captivity. She never had known what it was like to live as a Jew in her land. She wasn't born in the land of Canaan. She wasn't born in the land of promise. She was raised in a pagan culture as a Jew. She knew she was a Jew, but it was even hidden that she was a Jew. Later on in the uh, passage of Scripture, Mordecai even tells her, don't reveal the fact that you're a Jew. Don't tell anybody. Don't reveal that fact. Um, And so we see some things as we go through uh, the book of Esther. Uh, Some people talk about Esther like it's kind of a book of coincidences. And if you think that Esther is a book of coincidences, you'd have to believe a lot about coincidence, like Esther just happens to be beautiful. Uh, Esther's a Jew, and the Bible says that she's more beautiful than any woman that's in the land. Uh, Esther just happens to be favored over all the women by the king. Esther just happens to be Jewish. Uh, Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king's life and just happens uh, to rescue him and save him. Uh, Haman just happens to mention his troubles with Mordecai to his friends. Haman's friends just happen to encourage him to build a gallows. Xerxes just happens to have trouble sleeping, and Xerxes just happens to have a book read to him, and the book just happens to contain the record of Mordecai's deed, and he remembers that. And then it just happens that Mordecai was never rewarded. And, and Haman just happens to come in just as the king is wondering how to honor Mordecai. You see, if we read the book and think God is not in it, then everything just happens. And if it just happens and God's not present, then all of these coincidences, which are amazing, miraculous coincidences, seem to be enacted and responsible for, and this, these miraculous things are happening while God's not being mentioned and God's not being praised. There's some interesting things as we read the book of Esther before we get uh, to the outline today, but I think ways in which the story is both interesting and practical and relevant to us. One, the Jews were living in dispersion in Persia. So get this, they were a religious minority living in a society which was dominated by spiritual and moral values that were at great variance to theirs. Can you, can you understand what that's like? A religious minority living in a culture to where what the culture is doing, what the culture believes, what the culture is enacting, is at a great variance to what we believe and what we understand. And how do you do that? When you're a religious minority, how do you relate to that dominant culture? Is our culture today dominant? It's a very dominant culture. It's a very uh, 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 a culture to which it divides us as, as a people and makes it difficult for us to live. So how do you live in that dominant culture? Do you, do you try to withdraw from it completely so you stay pure and don't touch it at all? Do you create your own subculture and not live in that culture, not be a part of that culture? Do you divorce yourself from the culture altogether? But you can't ever really do that, honestly, can you? Because you have to live your life and you have to work your job and you're part of the culture whether you want to be or not. Do you just try to fit in and keep your views secret? Do you try to be a secret Christian? a secret child of God uh, in that culture. That doesn't seem right, does it? I mean, to pretend to not be who you are in the culture because the culture is diverse and against and even opposed to strongly uh, the things that we hold to and believe. And what about this? Do we protest and criticize everything in culture? Do we make culture the villain? Do we make culture uh, the demon? Uh, Do we uh, tell always, pointing out, Cursing the darkness, cursing the darkness, cursing the darkness. And sometimes, if we're not careful as Christians, we find ourselves doing that. But that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem practical. It doesn't seem charitable. It doesn't seem loving. 
nor does it seem powerful. Like we're believers who have victory and we have the Holy Spirit and we're able to overcome he that's in the world because greater is he that is in us. And uh, for us to have to hide under a rock, that doesn't seem like part of what God's plan would be. Another interesting thing as we read this book is here you have a male-dominated society in which a woman becomes a major vehicle for social justice. Uh, Do you find that relevant in the culture that we live in today? I mean, do you find that, I mean, even relevant to, to our world today? And then lastly, I think as we read the book for anyone, male or female, uh, how do you follow God in morally and spiritually and culturally ambiguous situations? Can and does God work with you in situations that you're placed in that are morally ambiguous, culturally ambiguous? As we're in these situations that we face, I mean, can God use me in a situation like Esther was thrust in? I mean, can you imagine where Esther was? I mean, Esther was on, she starred in, you know, Persian Idol, right? I mean, that was basically, you know, she was chosen among all these women that were, you know, brought before some kind of big beauty pageant, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but after reading chapters one and two, I like Vashti more than I like Esther. Are you with me? I mean, Vashti was unwilling to stand before the king, a bunch of drunken idiots, all right, and show off her body. She was unwilling to do it. She refused to do it. She seemed to have more moral character than Esther did. Esther hid who she was. She leveraged her beauty to get the uh, king's attention. She was not afraid to go in and be part of this harem to which they were going to be chosen to be concubines, and the one winner was going to be the wife and the queen. I don't know if any of you women would like to sign up for this beauty pageant, but I doubt doubt we'd have too many takers today uh, of, of that kind of thing. But Esther went into this. God used that. Can God use us in situations that seem to be ambiguous uh, in this way? And as we look at the first two chapters of the book, I think there's some things that we need to take away from it. And I think the first thing we can take away is God is always at work in spite of appearances. God is always at work in spite of appearances. How many believe that? God is always at work in spite of appearances. Uh, Also, that we live in a culture, in a world that is obsessed with appearances and nothing but appearances. They're completely obsessed and driven by appearances. So despite appearances, God is always at work. We live in a culture, in a world that is obsessed with appearances, only appearances. And that's a difficult thing for us to navigate as Christians. And then how about this? How can God's work free us from the world's ways? How can God's work free us from living under enslavement to the culture's dominance, to what the culture does that's anti-God, that's against uh, the ways of living uh, in this world that God has placed us in? Because the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us what? To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live godly and soberly and righteously in this present world. How do you live soberly when the alcohol is flowing? Did you see that in the first chapter? When it was legal for people to drink their brains out, for them to just keep drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking, and it was just, I mean, it was just not just excessive. It was insanity. And uh, we have a king, the person who's in control and the leader is this drunken ruler who's obsessed with himself, who's obsessed with women, and, and that's the world that Mordecai and Esther and the people of God are growing up in. We don't know how to relate to that at all, do we? We don't have rulers that are obsessed with women. 
We don't have rulers that are obsessed with alcohol, do we? We don't have, we don't have to deal with that at all. I mean, I think this aligns a little bit better than what we think it does. As we look at the culture in which we live, we understand some things and what God wants to teach us. Uh, this book, again, avoids any mentions of God, but God is at work always in spite of appearances. And uh, when you look at these people, I mean, there's, in some places it seems the author goes out of his way to ignore the fact that God is there. By the way, this is literary genius by God. God has inspired his word, and the literary genius of this book is that he doesn't mention God because it forces us to look for God. It forces us to find God maybe where we would overlook God. It forces us to see God at work even when his name's not mentioned. By the way, I think that is a good thing for us to do in the world that we live in today, don't you? We may not hear God's name. It may not be mentioned. But don't we know God's at work? Shouldn't we force ourselves to look for God at work every day? How many like me sometimes you forget to look for God at work? And God is always, I mean, pun intended, when you go to work, you can see God. God's at work, isn't he? God is everywhere that we go. The psalmist said it right. There's no place that I can go that God is not. There's no place that I can be that God is not present, that God is not actively involved in what is going on. Sometimes we feel lonely and abandoned, and it's sometimes that we think that God is hiding. But can I say this? God in this book is hidden, but he's not hiding. He's hidden, but he's not hiding. He is not hiding, although the culture seems to be uh, trying to make him a hidden God. He's not hiding. He's right there. He's obvious. He's out there. I mean, oh, as we look at what happens in the lives of his people, we see God's hand, don't we? We see God at work. Let me ask you this question in the culture that you live in. Do you see God at work? Do you see God at work in your life? Do you see God at work in your family? Do you see God at work in the successes and the good that you've received in life as a believer? We know every good and perfect gift comes from God, doesn't it? God is at work whether we hear his voice, whether we see him at work or not. God is always at work. They that seek me shall find me when they search for me with their whole heart. God is not hard to find, but I believe that God wants us to try to look for him. God wants us to seek him out. God, it's, a, it's the glory of God for us to see where God is at work. As we look through the rest of the Bible, whenever we see God's people in danger, he responds spectacularly. Think about the plagues in, in Exodus. But here, there's no miracle, there's no vision, there's no dream, there's no mention of God. And here, a whole string of coincidences happen. And if they did not, or if one had not, the Jews would have been destroyed, at least a great many of them, right? And what if this did not happen? Just little things, ordinary things. When you see one of the ten plagues in Exodus, you know, you say, that's God. But when we see Xerxes get drunk, we don't say, wow, God's at work. Are you with me? We don't look at Xerxes getting drunk and expelling Vashti and opening up this beauty pageant and inviting women and all of the land to come. We don't, we don't see God at work and working in there, but is God working there? Is God using that? And we don't see it sometimes, but it's there. And Esther, God is at work in ordinary ways. When God works in extraordinary ways, we know. And when God works in ordinary ways, we think he's not there but he is. Can I say this this morning? His silence is not absence. His hiddenness is not abandonment. His silence is not absence, and his hiddenness is not abandonment. 
If God seems to be hidden to you in what you're going through in life, can I say this? His silence is not absence. His hiddenness is not abandonment in your life. We said that in the world that we live in, they care only about appearances. But God doesn't care about appearances. We have a God that doesn't care. The book of Esther says it's, it's always inappropriate to be, made, uh, to be mad at God because he's not working in your life. How would you know that God is not working? God doesn't care about appearances, but the world does. If you look at the first banquet, it took 180 days to show his wealth. It took 180 days for him to show his greatness. Then shortly later, here's this beauty show, a form of, again, Persian idol. And, and if we're reading Esther to a girl, she might say, wow, in those days, the worth of a man was determined by the size of his wallet and the worth of a woman by the size of her dress. Boy, we know what that's like, don't we? In this culture that we live, it's about appearances. But now, it's the same. So in some ways, we're different than the days of Xerxes, but in many ways, we're the same. What you have matters more than what you are in the world that we live in, doesn't it? What you have matters more than what you are. The world says, unless you get this kind of credential, beauty, money, resume, unless you get these things, you're worthless. Commentators pretty much agreed that chapters 1 and 2 of Esther has compromise in it. Feminists don't like her because she's compromised. She listened to uh, Hege more than other women, meaning she was completely compliant. She was like a Barbie doll. She completely sold out to the system. Rabbis and evangelicals don't like her either in these chapters. They compare her with Daniel and his friends because Daniel and his friends made it clear they were Jews and they they would follow the Torah. They wouldn't give in to the ways of the culture, but Esther doesn't do this. Esther goes in. She involves herself. She's a part of. Liberal or conservative, she's sold out. This is true. Esther got off to a terrible start, didn't she? She made some bad choices at the beginning here. But what we see by the end of the book of Esther is she's brave, courageous, willing to give her life for. While she started in a bad way, what we learn from the book of Esther is that God can redeem your life. When you make bad choices and bad decisions, when you involve yourself sometimes in the culture that we live in, we understand that God can redeem your life. How many glad that God can redeem your life? Anybody early on in your Christianity or in your life made some bad choices and bad decisions? I made some. How about you? How many glad that God can redeem your life? He can change you. He can make you uh, care less about yourself and more about him. She later is found saying, if I perish, I perish. She's willing to give her life to lay it down for her people. God, uh, you know, sometimes when we look at the Bible, we think God can't use us, and we're not getting the message of the Bible. Instead, Instead, sometimes we impose our own message of the Bible. Here's sometimes what we think. We assume The message of the Bible is this. God blesses and saves those who live morally exemplary lives. God blesses and saves those who live morally exemplary lives. And that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God persistently and continuously gives his grace to people that don't ask for it, that don't deserve it, and don't even fully appreciate it after they get it. Uh, Through, uh, uh, to a great degree, we're in the, Uh, beauty treatments of the world like Esther, to a great degree were concubines in the world system, 
But how many are glad that God has not given up on us? He's not given up on us. And as we look at that last kind of point that I made is just here as we look at God can free us from the world's ways, I want you to think about this. Real beauty is not self-consummation, but self-sacrifice. Real beauty is not self-consummation or being consumed with oneself. Real beauty is self-sacrifice. We live in a world that says real true beauty is being consumed with your outward appearance. And sometimes we spiritualize that. We're saying, well, my outside needs to reflect my inside. I understand that. But are you consumed with appearances? Are you consumed with your outside appearance such that it drives and controls you, keeps you from following after God? Sometimes what happens even in the Christian world is we, we are impacted by the world's obsession with appearance more than we would like to admit. You'd see in the church uh, a single guy and a single girl. And the first basis for attraction is what? Looks. And so I think there's a lot of good people, godly people, charactered people that get overlooked because they don't look like the beauty queen or the model. And I think that's sad. Because I think sometimes what we do, because we live in this world system, is we say, well, I've got to be attracted to the outside. And so we overlook. And what we usually do is we find somebody that's really attractive, and then we pray they have character. You with me? I I pray they're a good Christian. I I pray they they have character. But how many know that man doesn't look on the out, a man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart? That God doesn't see the way that we see. That in the church, uh, value should not be our outward appearance. Value should be who we are as a people, as children of the Most High God. If we look at this uh, passage, I just want to look over these uh, points quickly in the time that we have left. I want to look at this hidden king through the eyes of chapter 1. And first point is the haughty king. The haughty king. We see, really, again, as we look at twos, two kings. One is haughty, the other is hidden. One is haughty, the other is hidden. One is out there, one is showy, one is performing, one is throwing feasts for himself, calling himself great, and going on and on and on for 180 days about how awesome he is and how rich he is and how much he can accomplish. He's haughty. And then this other king that we don't see is king of kings and lord of lords, yet hidden. Not speaking of himself, not doing anything to outwardly show himself. As we look at this, I, I want to first look at King Xerxes, uh, King Ahasuerus, as his Hebrew name is here, and he's haughty. He's haughty in what ways? Well, uh, one, I think that we should acknowledge this. Pride corrupts all of who we are. Pride corrupts all of who we are. If you believe yourself not to struggle with pride, you're struggling with pride. Are you with me? How many understand that pride is a daily struggle that we have? We have pride in different ways. Sometimes the uh, appropriate way to express pride within the church is I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And what do we mean about that? Well, I have a lot of stuff, and I have a lot of possessions, and look at how this is, and look how good my life is. And How many know that blessings are not material possessions that the world gives us or that we can attain on our own? Blessings are not what you can go and get and what you can go and buy. Blessings are what God can give and only God can give. We are blessed as a people, but sometimes we adapt spiritually into the culture so much in the church that even we are proud about who we are, about where we've come from, about what we have, and we spiritualize these 
concepts of the culture in such ways that we allow pride to fester into our lives. And here's a king that could have known God, that could have seen God, that could have heard about God through many, many different ways. But a king who truly worshipped himself. Truly in the world we live in, there's only two masters, right? That's what Jesus presented. There's only two kings. There's only two lords. He said, "You're gonna, no man can serve two masters. He's going to hate one and love the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and the flesh. You cannot serve God and yourself. You cannot serve God and the world. You can't love God and love the world. As a matter of fact, loving God and loving the world are opposed to each other. The love that we have for God is his love. The love that we have for the world is fleshly love, carnal love. It's love for ourselves. He commands us, what? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let me ask you a question this morning as we read chapter 1. Is the love of the Father in Xerxes? No, he's in love with the world. He doesn't have the love of the Father. He doesn't have the love of God. He loves himself. He loves what he can get for himself. He loves what he can do for himself. He loves what people do for himself. Be careful, Christian, when you fall into the culture so much that the love that you have is only for yourself. As God presents what husbands are supposed to do for their wives, he says, husbands, what? Love your wives, even as Christ also, what? Love the church, and then he defines it, and gave himself for it. And then he contrasts that against the love that you have. He says, for no man yet hates his own flesh, He loves his own flesh. He nourishes his own flesh. He cherishes his own flesh. We, by our natures, love ourselves. Take a trip to the nursery. You can see self-love right at the forefront. Sometimes we don't have to go by that far. We just look in the mirror. But we are impacted by this in the culture that we live. We're presented with false love. We're presented with false lordship. And there are false kings Uh, that are ruling in our lives. And in her day, this king was a haughty king. He was a prideful king. He was haughty in his authority. He was haughty in his authority. How many know that authority structures uh, where authorities are full of pride are dangerous, uh, they're unhealthy, they're abusive, they don't belong in the church. Are you with me? They don't belong in the church. Authoritarian, top-down, dictatorial leadership doesn't belong in the church. But it's crept its way into the church. Uh, it's crept its way into homes. It doesn't belong in the home either, but it's crept its way in the home. It's abusive. It's unhealthy. Headship doesn't determine value. Are you with me? Headship doesn't determine value. Sometimes we look at it and we understand the order in which God placed things in the home or in the church. And we look at order, we think that God is doing what we do. When we put things in order, we determine them by their value. When God puts things in order, he's showing us how great he is, not how great we are. Are you with me today? If God exalts you, he's not exalting you because you're great. He's exalting you because he's great. If God raises you up in life and puts you in a better position in life than you've ever been in your life, he's not doing that because you're good. He's doing that because he's good. All of the raising in our life has to do with him. Any position that God places in, God has placed me in the position of the pastorate here in the church. He's given me oversight in the church. But what I understand is he's the chief shepherd. He's the one that's overseeing ultimately. He's the one that we answer to. And what I understand about myself 
Listen, I understand that I don't deserve to be in the position that I'm in. That it's by God's grace that God's placed me in this position. And whenever I confuse that with my goodness, I confuse my goodness with God's grace. We're in trouble. Are you with me? And you do that too, husbands in your home. Or fathers in your home. When you rule over and you provoke to wrath and you do not provoke with love and you don't understand headship, Because headship in the world, it's top-down, it's authoritarian, it's dictatorial, it doesn't belong in the home, it doesn't belong in the church, it's not what God intended, and it's not what Jesus modeled. Jesus modeled servant leadership, self-sacrificial, loving leadership. And when God puts you in a position of leadership, men and women, he, He wants you to model that same leadership to the world. Because we're supposed to be little Christs, aren't we? Just like Jesus treating the authority that we have, understanding that we only have it by His grace, and that God has put us in a position of authority to care and love and watch over and protect the ones that are underneath us. Not so that we can raise ourselves up and make ourselves great. He was haughty in His authority. He was haughty in His attitude. He was haughty in His attitude. Not just His authority, but He was haughty in His attitude. Come on, how many know that pride permeates not just the way that we rule over people, but the attitude with which we live our lives. Here, Xerxes, he's so haughty that in his attitude towards everything, if it doesn't serve him, then he doesn't want to be a part of it. If, he does, if, it's, not, if it's not bringing glory to him, then he doesn't want to be a part of it. How many know that that's a mess when that enters in the church? The Bible says, let each of us, what? Esteem others better than ourselves. Boy, it's a a terrible environment to be in, especially a spiritual environment, when we are thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. What does the Bible say? Think of yourself, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think, what is the next word? Soberly. Soberly. We have a king here who couldn't think soberly, not only because he was drunk on alcohol, but because he was drunk on pride. He was full of pride. What does God tell us to be filled with, Christians? Be not drunk with wine where is excess, but what? Be filled with the Spirit. I'll caution you just as a side note when it comes to alcohol, because I've seen as a pastor it destroy homes and families. Some of you that are sitting here that may be recovering from it, you understand the danger of it. You get that the social drinking of our world has nothing to do with what we see in biblical times. The social drinking of our world. Listen, I, we can't turn on the television without in, being inundated in our culture with alcoholism. While on the other side, we provide ways out for people. And God tells us, be not deceived. God tells us not to, not to understand that wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. It's not for kings. It's not for kings. He could have learned from the book of Proverbs. It's not for kings to drink wine. It's not for rulers. It's not for those who are called to oversee and protect and to be, listen, God calls us as believers to be sober-minded. It's so important as we see the danger and the destruction. The haughtiness, uh, the pride infected his authority, it affected his attitude, and then it affected his what? His actions. His actions. What in the world would someone do bringing, parading their wife in front of a group of drunken men? Because her body is beautiful. Does that show love for her? It's love for himself. Again, I have a lot of respect for Vashti. I'm not coming. 
No way. I don't know what that would have turned into, but we have a bunch of men that want to view a woman, and there are probably a bunch of women that are already present in that situation, and this, this man is wanting to parade his wife in front of a bunch of drunken people. How infected is he with pride that he's using, even supposed to be the people that he loves and supposed to watch over and care for, like his own flesh? What does the Bible say about our wives, husbands, that they're like they're our own flesh? That we're supposed to be one with them, united with them. Here's somebody who's treating her in such a degrading way, in such a horrible way. And what we understand in the world that we live in, that wherever pride is in play, women are abused, children are abused, authority structures are abused, and people are hurt. The haughty king. And then lastly, we're going to go through this very quickly. We're done. The hidden king. The hidden king. We said this already about him. Although he's not mentioned, he's, number one, always working. He's always working. He's always at work. Can I say this, number two? He's always merciful. He's always merciful. And number three, he's always faithful. He always keeps his promises. You think about that. God had made a promise and a covenant to Abraham. And what did he tell Abraham? Your people, your seed will become as the stars of the sky, the sands of the sea. Through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Israel gets carried into captivity. They seem to be uh, destroyed or almost destroyed. Hey, through Haman, he wants to wipe them all out, or a great number of them that were dwelling here in captivity. What did God promise? I'll protect you. I'll watch over you. And what was God doing? God was, through the Israelites, bringing a Messiah that was going to be for all of the world, Jews and Gentiles. You glad for that today? I'm thankful for that today. Aren't you glad that though his people were not faithful, by the way, that's why they were carried into captivity to begin with. They were unfaithful, that God is faithful. Hey, listen, when you're not faithful, he's faithful. When you don't keep your word, he keeps his word. When you don't keep your promises, he keeps his promises. And while we see in the world a haughty king, Listen, can I, can I submit this to you, church? Don't serve that king. Serve the hidden king. Serve the king who you can't see today. You say, I can't see him. I, I don't see him at work. And look at our world. And look what's happening all around us. And look at the authority structures. And, and look at all the, the divisive, uh, divisiveness. And look at all the hatred. And look at all the malice. Listen, look for God. He's there. He's there. He's at work. By the way, it's of the Lord's mercy that we're not consumed. Are you with me? It's of His compassion and His mercy because they fail not. Why? Because His mercies are what? New every morning and great is His faithfulness. And while we cannot see that king, listen, Esther found that hidden king was greater than the king she could see. And she served him. And she loved him. She made some mistakes, but her life was redeemable. And I say this to you this morning, you may have made a lot of mistakes. You may have sold yourself down the pike with everybody else in this world's culture, serving obsessed with attractiveness, obsessed with appearances, obsessed with alcohol, obsessed with uh, abuse of so many different things that we see in our world. That is the world that we live in. And you may have made those mistakes already in your life, but can I say this to you today? God can redeem your life from that stuff. God can give you new values. He can give you a new vision. 
He can give you a new understanding of how he's working in the world. But most of all, what he offers to you freely is new life. New life. And if you have Jesus, you have life. But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. Let me say this in closing. We've made the book of Esther about heroes. But those heroes did really bad things, and they did them on purpose. The book of Esther isn't about heroes. It's about God. A God who is hidden, but isn't hiding. A God whose name isn't mentioned, but never stops working. A God who is sovereign over every detail, for his plan will always be accomplished. A God who isn't sung about or worshipped, but never stops being Lord. He sees how we fail, yet he doesn't let our failures deter his plan. He can even turn the ashes of our failures into beauty and our, our weaknesses into strengths. There's a hero in the book of Esther, but it isn't Esther or Mordecai. It's the Lord of the stars, it's the Lord of the sea, and it's the Lord of you and me. And I hope he's the Lord of your life today. And he can be through the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrifice on the cross. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.